really is an honor for me to be here. And I want to introduce my amazing wife right here, Celesta. She's always preaching with me, even if you don't know it. Uh, the Lord's taught me so much through Celesta and our almost 39 years together, which is longer than most of you have been on the planet. Well, this is a hard topic. You know, Jesus is a lot of things, and subtle is not one of them. Um, we, we just heard the text. This is an in-your-face, Jesus-didn't-stutter passage. It's a hard passage. It, it, it hits all of us in a variety of really personal ways. So I appreciate the opportunity to address this. I'm so thankful that God doesn't, in his word, uh, shy away from the hard issues of life. Um, that's, of course, a, a misconception that a lot of people have about Christianity, that it's pie in the sky, by and by. It is anything but that. Jesus addressed all the things that we struggle with. Uh, the challenge is to, to take seriously what he said and, and live it out. So let me start with a, 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 an illustration that I think will, will help frame this for all of us. Uh, probably six weeks ago or so, um, we heard about the horrible, horrible flood in uh, the Houston area. I mean, it's like, oh, well, yeah, there was that one, and then there have been several. But I think that was the worst, 50 inches of rain in one storm. That's a decade's worth of rain in Phoenix. I mean, literally, 50 inches. And, and you probably remember uh, seeing some of the pictures on the news. Um, you got to love the Texans. <laughs> They're motoring around in their little, their little boats, um, rescuing people. I mean, that, that's awesome. Um, and you might remember there are people on rooftops. I remember uh, the, the public you know, radio announcements. They were telling people, don't go in your attic because the water's rising. Don't go in your attic unless you have an ax. So that if you get trapped in the attic, you can chop through your attic and get on the roof. I mean, it was that bad. People are drowning. Now, now just picture with me. One of these Texans, I'm sure in his cowboy hat, is uh, going through the neighborhoods looking for people, and sure enough, there's a guy on a roof, and he's, he sees him, and he gets his little boat right up to the house. Hey, buddy, I, I'm, I'm here to take you to safety. Now, picture the guy on the roof saying, man, I appreciate it. Thank you. I know this house is really trashed, and it's really wet. I got six feet of water on the inside, but you know what? I'm, it's comfortable. Oh, it, it's really humid and muddy and grungy right now, but, but this has worked for me for, for 30 years. So I appreciate your offer, but I think I'm just going to stay here and see how it works out. I like this house. It'd be kind of nuts. So he keeps going down the street. He finds another guy on the roof, same offer. And that guy says, man, I love this house. I've lived in this house for 20 years. It's all I've known. And I don't even know where you're going to take me. But if I stay in this house, I'm probably going to drown. As much as I hate it, I, I have no choice. This is not working. I can no longer live like this. So I'm going to get off this roof and entrust myself to you, and I don't even know where you're taking me, but I know I need life, and this is death. Got those two scenarios? 
I really think that's where we're at with this text from Jesus. Jesus is offering, he's <laughs> describing two paths of death and life. And many of us have known one path sexually that we're really comfortable with. But if we're honest, it's not working. And I think, I don't think, I'm confident. The Lord is calling us this morning, if, if we've been on a path of death, to consider a different way of life, even though we don't know where that's going to lead. If Jesus is offering that path, it will lead to health, goodness, and life. So let's, here's what I'm going to do. Um, my homiletics teacher in seminary told me, don't try to be clever. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and tell them what you told them. So let me tell you what I'm going to tell you. We're going to look first at Matthew 5, 27 and following. And look at three things about lust. Um, big picture, Jesus gives, a, and we just read the text, three um, aspects of lust um, from the words of Jesus. Then I want to turn, have us turn uh, to Ephesians uh, 4, 17 through 25 and, and draw three principles for how we can overcome lust. Fairly straightforward. So let, let's go. Let me put Matthew 5, 27 briefly in context. Uh, I'm sure Tim has given you some of this, um, but it's, I'll reiterate this morning. Jesus is contrasting the teachings of the Pharisees with God's truth. The Pharisees were, quite honestly, the evangelicals of the first century. They had a really high view of scripture. They, they believed it was the word of God. Uh, they taught it scrupulously, but they got stuck in adding their traditions to scripture and they actually found really clever ways to work their way around what God was actually saying. So six times uh, in this section of Matthew, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. The, the you've heard it said was your traditions of scripture, the way you've understood and explained scripture is this, but actually you've missed it. I say to you, and then he clarifies the truth of God. Jesus makes it crystal clear that the problem is not scripture. A couple of verses earlier, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will not. It is trustworthy, inspired by God down to the smallest letter and part of the letter, jot and tittle. The tiniest piece of scripture won't pass away until it's all fulfilled. So Jesus is saying, you can stand on scripture. What God has to say, stake your life on it, but understand what it's saying and not, don't get caught up in what it's actually not saying, and particularly the ways we try to do an in run uh, around the truth of God. The Pharisees were experts at that. Uh, and I think if we're honest, if I'm honest, I can play fast and loose with scripture and pretend, con myself into thinking I'm doing what God says, but I find sneaky ways um, of, of making exceptions. So Jesus comes to the issue. He, he addresses several things in the Ten Commandments, but this text is on the issue of lust. And, and again, Jesus doesn't stutter. He just hits it head on. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's the, the big idea here. Lust is not a human problem, but a heart problem. By human problem, I mean simply part of our humanity. God is the creator. And I, I want you to think of this concept throughout this whole sermon. The problem is not that we're sexual beings. Now, it feels like that's the problem sometimes. Um, and I can't speak to female sexuality. I don't have a lot of estrogen. <laughs> but I have more, certainly my share of testosterone. And I know there are plenty of days as a guy that it feels like our sexuality is the problem. Sometimes it feels like our bodies are the problem. But, you know, going back to Genesis 1, God made us. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, God gave us sexuality. He made us sexual beings. He made these bodies. That's what I mean by our humanity. And because we're sexual beings, it's, it's really normal that we, have, that we appreciate beauty, that we have a sense of, of even attraction to others. For me as a guy from age 12, there was this dramatic shift. Girls were a pain in the rear end until age 12. And then literally, I remember the, the, the place. Um, I was having lunch with my mom and all of a sudden there was a girl my age at the other table. Whoa, it's like a girl. Maybe she sees me. And pretty, it's just been unbroken since then that I have this sense of, of appreciation and attraction toward the opposite sex. That's part of my humanness and being created by God. That's a good thing. So Jesus is not saying if you simply recognize others as attractive and have uh, sexual attraction that you're going to hell. That is not what he's saying. This is, this is not a human problem. It's a lust problem. And he's very specific here. I, I know he's not saying the issue is, the problem is not simply attraction, sexual attraction, because he's very specific. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Here's, here's the deal. The Pharisees in their cleverness thought with all of God's laws, that they, they could find ways to technically obey them, but in essence, getting around them. They did it with honoring, honoring your parents, which is one of the Ten Commandments, one we most often ignore in this culture, and that's primarily financially taking care of your parents as they age. So Pharisees said, oh, yes, here's what we'll do. We'll dedicate our, our material wealth to God. And then we don't have to give it to our parents to take care of them. I mean, that's clever. Uh, and then all kinds of word games. You're not supposed to swear, but if you swear by the, by the temple, then, then it's okay. Um, well, they did the same thing with lust. They said, well, as long as you don't actually have sex with someone you're not married to, it's okay. And Jesus is cutting through that. He says, in essence, quit trying to play games with God. It's not a matter of just having sex with someone. If you look at someone, and again, he's very specific. It's not that you look at someone and, and recognize that they're attractive and, and have a sexual attraction toward them. It's much more than that. That's not the issue. It's going beyond that. It's a very specific kind of look. In, in Greek, there's a, 
a clause here. It's for it's a purpose clause. You look for the purpose of lust. Uh, the ESV says you look with with lustful intent. Basically, it's looking at someone else and objectifying them sexually. Looking at them not as a person, not as a fellow bearer of the image of God, not as a brother, not as a sister, but simply an object, a sexual object for your mental lustful satisfaction. I am looking at them with with lust, with with a desire to sleep with them, but if I don't actually touch them, it's all okay. And Jesus says, no, no. Lust in and of itself in your heart is a very real problem. It's a sin problem. Well, Jesus goes on. Well, let me, let me just stop there and note. Um, in our culture, maybe I just state the obvious, but I'm still going to state it. We don't buy this. We don't buy this at all culturally. In fact, it, it, it's, it's, it's so ubiquitous. It's, it's so pervasive that we lose a sense of the fact that it's even a problem. Research tells us that porn is, is roughly a $100 billion worldwide industry. And that's the legal stuff. Like, economists can't even calculate uh, the, the, the scope of this. Uh, in the United States, it's estimated legal porn is a $10 to $12 billion industry. That's more than the income of CBS, NBC, uh, and which one did I miss? Uh, ABC combined. That's more than any professional sports team's income. Like it's it just, it's so enormous. And, and you look at the stats on, on porn usage, 77% of internet users uh, acknowledge that they use porn on a, at least monthly basis. And, and we could go on and on. And this, by the way, isn't just a, a male problem. Um, research with secular research with just population at large, as well as surveys of Christian women, um, are identical. And they tell us that one out of three people in our culture who look at porn are women. So this, this impacts all of us. And even if we're not personally looking at porn, and I'm sure not everyone here is, um, it still impacts us. It impacts us because it's a pornified culture. So you may not be looking at porn, but others are, and that shapes how you view you, how they view you. I think that's particularly felt by women. But men as well. We may not be looking at it, but others are, and it shapes. It, it, it's like becomes the air we breathe. Um, it, it's this noxious fume that's in the air so that other people are depersonalized. Um, other people aren't looked at as, as human beings, um, as bearers of the image of God. Well, Jesus goes from there to say that lust is deadly. So lust is a, not a human problem, but a heart problem. And that leads us really naturally to lust is deadly. Because at the end of this, in verse 30, he says, it would be better that you maim yourself if that's what it takes to overcome lust because it would be better to lose an, a hand or an eye and not go to hell. 
and Je- Jesus is, there's, there's nothing subtle here. Now, we might take that to mean Jesus is saying, if you ever lust, if you ever look at porn, you're going to hell. That might seem like what he's saying. I'm confident that's not what he's saying because that would contradict countless other passages that say that the basis for eternal life is not my works, it's the blood of Jesus. We sang about that. And that's, that's to me, the most precious truth in, in Scripture. As Paul said, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy that he saved us in Christ. So surely Jesus isn't saying if you ever lust, you're going to hell. But I think what he is saying is the path of lust is the path of death. It, it, everything about it destroys. There is no life there. It takes life. It steals life. It is the path of death. How many of you saw, uh, have seen Gladiator? Okay. I don't know if you remember this scene. Um, it's my fav- one of my favorite scenes in Gladiator. It's an amazing movie. Um, it, it, you might not remember it because it's super short. But some of the gladiators are around a, a, a small table. And, and there's a, a black, it's kind of a wicker basket uh, upside down on the table. And they're, doing, they're hitting it. Boom, 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 boom. They pull it up. And there's a cobra, rears its head. Do you remember that, some of you? It was a really quick scene, so go watch it again. Um, so this cobra rears its head, and, and there's gladiators around this little table, and they're playing a game. How, how's this for a game? Um, there's a little piece of, of dried corn on the table, and they grab it before the, before the cobra can bite them. Awesome game. But hey, you're a gladiator. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. Okay, what a game. I mean, what a, what a picture. Okay, I want you to think about that game in terms of porn. We can think, a little bit of lust here, a little bit of porn there, but nothing bigger. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm managing it. I probably shouldn't have done it. Sorry, Jesus. But then there's a little more here and a little more there. And think they're not getting bit. Now, if, if you're playing pick the corn before the cobra bites you, <laughs> you know if you've lost the game. Because <laughs> whammo, that's it. You know instantly if a cobra bites you. I don't think there's any such thing as a painless cobra bite, or so I'm told. I don't really want to test that one, test my hypothesis. Um, But that's my understanding. You get bitten by a cobra, you know you've been bitten, and that's it. But here's the tricky thing about lust. It bites us every time. Because Jesus says this is the way of death. So every time we give in, it's as if the cobra is putting poison into our system. But it's so tricky because we can think we're not, we're, we're getting by with it. We can think it's no big deal. I mean, look what other people do. This is just, you know, a little bit. It's just once in a while uh, or whatever. I don't look at the things other people look at. I don't actually have sex with men, with women. You know, there's a million ways we can rationalize, but Jesus says lust is the way of death. And we are getting bit. Let me just share a few things um, as Pastor Tim said, I, 
just in God's providence, um, sexuality is, a, is an aspect that God's asked us to, to focus on, Celeste and I both. I teach a course and have for 15 years at Phoenix Seminary on biblical sexuality, um, published quite a bit. Um, I say that not to impress you, but just to say I've given this tons of thought, reflection. For about eight years, I worked with men struggling with sexual compulsion, and I've seen firsthand what, what lust can do, and it scares me. Uh, it's made me that much more careful and cautious about uh, my own practices. One of the, am I, did I lose my sound here? Okay, I'll, I'll try to speak up. Um, there was research done in the 80s and, yeah, pretty much the 80s. It really can't be done today because they can't get a control group. Uh, it was measuring the effect of pornography viewing on young college men. Um, I, I haven't seen any recent research because, again, good luck trying to find uh, a cohort for a, for a control group of young college men who've not looked at porn. Um, but in the 80s, they could do that because this, this was pre-internet. Most of you don't remember those days, but some of us do. Uh, and so <clears throat> secular researchers, quite secular, um, designed various studies so they'd have a control group, men that hadn't seen porn and weren't shown porn, and another group that were given a short-term uh, exposure to porn. I know in one of the control groups, the, the guys that weren't looking at porn were looking at proceedings from the uh, British House of Commons. Must have been really exciting. Um, <laughs> And, and they did bef before and after tests to, to measure um, whether or not the porn impacted um, th their beliefs, etc. Staggering, staggering findings. Incre and you will, you will not hear this in our culture. This is multiply, uh, research that was replicated multiple times. Um, you'll, you'll see it buried in some of the literature. But we don't, we don't want to acknowledge what porn does. For instance, they found that short-term viewing, a couple weeks of like 30 minutes of a softcore porn film, which today would be mainstream HBO, um, doubled the likelihood that a young man said he would rape a woman if he knew he wouldn't get caught. Doubled. Almost double, I think it did double, the perception that, that young men had uh, toward their partners uh, in, in terms of dissatisfaction with their partner's physical features. Because what woman can, can compare to Miss November, who actually is not actually real? She's been airbrushed and has had $100,000 worth of cosmetic surgery. You can't compare to that. Um, it's not even real. Um, it really decreased men's desire to have daughters. It dramatically increases men's sense of male superiority and female inferiority and the right of men to control and dominate women. They assessed all this and found a direct, overwhelming impact of pornography in all these ways. And I could go on with a whole bunch of other things, but I think you've got the idea. Um, pornography is the way of death. It's, it kills relationships um, it even kills our ability sexually. And this is really well known in the secular literature. Um, men who uh, consume porn on an on a ongoing basis, really high percentage can no longer function sexually. Uh, it's like they burn themselves out. Wow. Satan is a liar and a thief. 
Um, and, and this so demonstrates that. Well, I, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but um, as part of researching this sermon, um, I ran across an article that I had in my file. It, it was uh, on WebMD. Now, most of you are familiar with WebMD. Online, you know, if you think you've come down with beriberi or something, you know, go on there. And, okay, maybe I'm not going to die tomorrow. Um, just, a, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's supposed to be a really credible source for, for medical questions, medical knowledge, real concise, okay? So, usually really trustworthy. Well, uh, usually. Um, this one, again, it's written by medical experts uh, and one psychologist, uh, was on pornography. And they were responding to the question, um, this couple, Tom and Kathy, and Kathy was concerned because her boyfriend, I, I, it wasn't clear if it was boyfriend or husband, it doesn't really matter, for the sake of the story, um, Kathy's partner was looking at porn late at night and didn't seem as interested in her, and that really bothered her. So these experts say, well, for most women, there's really no need to worry. Whatever may be drawing a man to porn, it's seldom a reflection of his partner. It's really not a problem. Men's brains are hardwired for easy arousal. So men are ready for sex whenever the opportunity knocks. Uh, a propagation of the species kind of thing. Once Kate realized that porn was not her replacement and Tom felt less ashamed about his habit, the couple talked more easily about their sex life and everything was fine. And then here's the end of the article. Think you might be interested in seeing what porn is like? Follow these guidelines to make it a positive part of your relationship. And while you're at it, go ahead and make a cocktail out of arsenic, and you'll really enjoy it. Like, I wanted to scream. I think I probably did say something out loud, um, but I won't go into that. Like, these are our experts, and they're telling us to poison ourselves. These are experts saying, pursue the path of death. But those voices are pervasive and hence persuasive. John 10.10, in John 10, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I can't think of anything that's a clear picture of killing, deceiving, harming than pornography. But Satan is the god of this world, and he spreads lies. Well, that leads us naturally to Jesus' third point, and that is this. Victory over lust is worth any price. Because it's the way of death, because it is so costly, it will destroy you and your relationships, ultimately your, your relationship with God and every other relationship. It's worth whatever it takes to have victory. And Jesus is surely being hyperbolic here. If your eye offends you, gouge it out. <laughs> that, I, okay, I get the picture, Jesus. You, you're really being emphatic here. This is a big deal. If your hand offends you, chop it off. Now, I know Jesus isn't speaking literally because that would violate the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 14.1 14, says, don't cut yourself. First, this is after 
Jesus ascended, but it's scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, uh, Holy Spirit. Uh, honor God with your body. So Jesus is surely not literally saying, if you're having a problem with lust, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. Because you don't even have to see porn. You don't have to continue to look at porn to still have images in your head. And, and many of us sadly understand that. It's hyperbolic language to say no price is too great because the stakes are so high. Do whatever you have to do to have victory. That's the point. Well, let's, let's move to Ephesians 5, and I'm going to, in closing, give you three fairly quick, um, which doesn't mean simple in application, but they're not hard concepts, uh, but three ways we can live this out. Because if you're tracking with me, hopefully you're saying, man, I've got to take this more seriously. I've got to double down on my thought life. Or some of you might be saying, my goodness, I've got to make major changes. This is eating me up. So what do you do practically? Ephesians 4, 17. This is the most detailed description of victory over sexual sin in the New Testament. And it's really a description of what I would call sexual addiction. I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, uh, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality. He uses several words here for sexual sin, and sensuality is one of them. Greedy to practice every kind of sexual impurity. That's not, but that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and are, were taught in him, truth is in Jesus. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And the, the desire there, it probably has a sexual connotation. Uh, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away falsehood, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. We're members one of another. There's so much there, I, I can do a whole sermon on that. I won't. I'll just give you three quick points. Paul is speaking to Ephesians, who, who interestingly, they were Gentiles, but he says, don't live that Gentile way of life, which was really characterized by sexual sin. I, I've been to Ephesus, and I actually, they've uncovered, uncovered a brothel in Ephesus. Believe me, they know it was a brothel from the paintings that are there. Um, they actually had a god, um, and the god is pictured with this enormous penis. Uh, like, wow, what kind of culture was that? Down the street from the brothel, I've seen one of the ancient... Uh, it's like a, an advertisement from the first century pointing to the brothel and there's a, a woman and it says, come. Like, wow. See, sexual struggle is nothing new. That was characteristic of Ephesus and, and the Gentile world. And so Paul is giving them three principles that will help them break from that. The first is this. Make a clean break with old sinful sexual habits. In verse 22, he says, Put off that old way of life. And again, the context is, the emphasis is that old sexually sinful and, and even compulsive. Uh, in, in verse 
19, they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Um, a literal rendering from Greek would be with a continual thirst for more. Because sexual sin doesn't satisfy. So you want more and more, but you do more and you don't get the satisfaction. Sorry. That's really impressive. Um, So you just, uh, in our sinful foolishness, instead of saying, this isn't working, I I need to repent and turn, we just double down and, and, and try more of it. No. Paul says, principle one, make a clean break. Put off the old way of life. He's using a garment metaphor. He's picturing the old sexual compulsion way of living, that lustful way of living like a filthy garment. Okay, we're downtown. Uh, Sultz and I lived downtown for years. We're not too far now, and and I love it downtown. Um, It's much more real. Uh, As I tell my students, much more real than the white suburbs where I've spent much of my life, and, and, and I love that. Um, we need the Jesus, Jesus spread in the heart of the city. Well, you know because your church is downtown, there are a lot of homeless people here. Picture you're going home, and you're, you're getting on the freeway on 7th, and there's a homeless guy. This happens all the time, right? You got your window down. You, can, you, you smell the what's on this coat. You, you get close, there's a red light, and he's got this filthy coat. You can see he's thrown up on this coat. You can smell the urine. It's often what happens, right? Now, can you picture, you, act, you just happen, maybe providentially, to have an extra coat in your back seat. And you say, buddy, that's a nasty coat. It's, we're getting toward winter. Let me give you a new one. Let me give you a clean one. And this guy might say, Eh, I know it's kind of nasty. I'm just going to take one arm out. Because this coat's worked for me for a long time. I could say, no, no. Get rid of that. It's filthy. It reeks. It's going to give you sickness. I got a new coat for you here. Get rid of it. You don't halfway get rid of a filthy garment, right? It's all or nothing. And that's Paul's point. Make a clean break. And that's what we have to do with sexual sin. We can't halfway do it. There's no such thing as sin management in general, and there's sure not such a thing as sin management with with lust. Um, It can't be a little bit. We have to make a clean break, change those old ways. That may be guys that I've worked with, some of them had to change jobs. Most of them got rid of cable television. A lot of them got rid of Internet at home. One friend got rid of his smartphone. He got a flip phone. His friends gave him grief for that. But he said, you know what? I about lost my marriage over this. And flip phone is just fine for me. Thank you. That's a small price to pay to not be tempted. We have to personalize what this means, but I think you get the idea. A clean break means a clean break. Whatever we have to do. Secondly, we need to identify the lies and refute them with the truth. About 10 times in this short paragraph, Paul talks about truth versus lies, truth versus deception. Satan is a liar, and when it comes to lust, he lies to us in countless ways. Uh, There are various lies that will keep our sin struggle going, Um, rationalizations. Other people do far worse things. 
If my wife would meet my needs, I wouldn't have to do this. It's really not that big a deal. Um, or, or toxic shame lies. I'm just a whore, so I might as well do this. Fill in the blank. There are loads of lies. If we're going to overcome lust, we have to begin to identify lies and walk in truth. And you, you won't be able to do that by yourself. Notice verse 25. It says, speak the truth one to another. We need help in, in, in battling sin. And we certainly need help in battling sin sexually. So if, if you're sitting here this morning feeling some conviction, let me just say, act on it. And act quickly. And act decisively. And don't act privately. I mean, there's private business to do with God, to be sure. James 5 says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another <coughs> that you may be healed. You've got church leaders here. You've got pastors. You've got, you've got others who, who I know would love to assist you. And if, if it's a certain level of struggle, they may refer you to a Christian counselor to assist, not instead of, but to assist. But um, we've, we've got to begin to walk in truth, and we don't even know many of the lies we've bought into. And then finally, verse 24, Paul says that we're to, we put off and we put on. We're to put on Christ. And the point, they, they were already believers, so it wasn't you need to accept Jesus as your Savior. You and I can be Christians, but not have fully put on Christ. We, we've kept rooms in our life where, where Christ isn't quite allowed. Um, we'll give him Sunday, we'll give him this. We're not giving him that. Jesus is, or Paul is saying, put on Christ. Uh, basically, he's saying, establish a, a Christ-centered lifestyle in every domain. And again, we, we're going to need help doing that. It means there's, there's no exceptions. There's, there's no area where it's, I'll do it my way in this part. Um, that just doesn't work. Let me close by saying, I, I think in all of this, the key is we have to be all in. John Owen is, uh, was one of the greatest pastor theologians of the 17th century. Um, he wrote the best book in my library on sin, and I have a bunch of them. Um, and he said this, be killing sin or sin will kill you. Kill is, that's graphic language. I, it's not just a little thump. It's not just a step back. It is decisive. And that's where the, 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 the Christ-centered lifestyle comes in. It's, it's the whole, whole package. Nothing, nothing held back. Wow. Much more to say, but I trust God to use, <coughs> use this to speak to us. Let me close with another of my favorite 17th century pastor theologians. His name was Richard Sibbs. And I close with this. Um, these are among the most powerful 10 words that I have ever heard. And it's so applicable to this because you might be sitting here thinking, uh, I, there's, I've, I've messed up too many times. I, I don't see how God can forgive me. I, I just forget it. Pastor Sibbs said this. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. We're about to come to communion. What an awesome time 
to do whatever business we need to do with God. But again, it can't be half-hearted. It can't be one arm in the filthy coat. It has to be all in, putting on Christ in all the domains of life and getting help from others doing it. And there's mercy in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you give us clear teaching that, that directs us. Lord, we are sinners, all of us. We sin in so many different ways, and most of us struggle sexually. And some of us are struggling sexually in overwhelming ways. Lord, give us courage this morning to take whatever steps we need to take. Show us your mercy, Lord. Give us the strength to confess what we need to confess, to get the help we need. Lord, I pray that there would be victories where there have been defeats. And we're so grateful for your mercy. In your name we pray, amen.